Leaders and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetsluth, and today it's the morning of Thursday, the 9th of December in Seoul, and I'm joined via Zoom by former AP Bureau Chief Jean Lee to talk to me about her experience of reporting on North Korea from inside North Korea. Before we get started, please leave a review about the podcast. That's all I want for Christmas are some good reviews. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription that funds the journalism that we put out every day. And thirdly, check out nknews.org shop for our NK leadership chart, which I have on the wall behind me, art posters, the 2022 calendar, and more. Uh, as always, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. All right, to introduce my guest today properly, Jean Lee is an American journalist who opened the first US news bureau in Pyongyang, that of Associated Press or AP, just about 10 years ago. She's also co-host of the excellent BBC podcast, Lazarus Heist. If you haven't heard that yet, please do yourself a favor and binge it after hearing this interview. Uh, Jean currently does analysis at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, DC. You can find Jean on Twitter at NewsGene. Thanks for joining me on the show today, Jean. Hi, great to join you. And I, I, should we uh, explain to listeners that you're not very well at the moment, you're suffering from long COVID, uh, so you, we may need to take a break, but that shouldn't uh, affect the quality of the interview. <laughs> That's fine, yes. I uh, did get very sick with uh, COVID early on in the pandemic, and I'm still suffering the consequences, uh, the, the lingering symptoms, so... I apologize in advance. Sometimes it can make it very hard for me to express my thoughts, but hopefully we'll 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 power through. But you're looking and sounding well, at least. So, uh, but I, I am uh, sorry to hear that you've been you've had these lingering symptoms for so long. I do hope you get over that soon. Thank you. Okay, uh, you were working for AP here in Seoul, I think, when ten years ago the agency signed a contract with North Korea to not a contract, an agreement to open a bureau in Pyongyang. This was supposed to happen. Uh, almost exactly 10 years ago in December 2011, but ended up being put off until early 2012 because of Kim Jong-il's death. Can you give us a little bit of the inside story on how and why AP came to be the first people to open a bureau in Pyongyang? So I was posted to Seoul in September of 2008. And you know, my first day as AP Seoul bureau chief was on September 9th, 2008. And if you follow the North Korean calendar, you will know that this was North Korea's Hwangap, their 60th anniversary, the 60th anniversary of the founding of North Korea. And so a huge anniversary for the North Koreans. And so I, you know, I've been working in London for years as a correspondent and editor and was with this new posting, was keen to get to as quickly as I could in time for this anniversary, because what we were expecting was to see Kim Jong-il uh, appearing at that parade. And that was the day when he did not appear. Mm. And so certainly we were consumed by the question of what was happening to Kim Jong-il, but also what happened just before we turned the, the, the feed on to see what was happening in North Korea. My boss told me that my mission would be to open a US and AP bureau in Pyongyang. So I had these two big things happen on my first day wow. of work. And um, the I, I would say that when I was told this, I was thinking, I don't even know how you get a visa to get into North Korea. How do you open 
an office there. But just a little background. The AP president at the time, Tom Curley, was somebody who, who was on a quest to open AP bureaus in places where the U.S. had an adversarial relationship. Mm -hmm. And so before Pyongyang, there was Cuba. There was an AP bureau that opened in Havana. And before that, Hanoi. And so there mm. was a pattern. And it's a really interesting mission of trying to get into places and establish a presence and get reporters on the ground in countries where U.S. news organizations had had limited access. And Pyongyang was next on the this list. So this was a mission that that he really championed at the time. And I was just the person tapped to try to carry out that mission. Okay. So it was a given from the from the word go that, that you were going to be the one to do it. And I'm I I don't know if there were previous bureau chiefs who were given that task as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, this was the this became my mission. And people often ask me, why did you choose to go to North Korea? It wasn't a choice. Certainly any foreign correspondent based in Seoul who covers Korea thinks about how do I get into North Korea? I mean, because how do you cover a country mm. from the outside when you can't get in there? It's very, ideally, we want to get on the ground. And I can tell you, and I hope we'll get into this discussion, Under my understanding of North Korea is so different from having spent time on the ground. And it does break my heart that uh, correspondents today haven't had that opportunity. Yeah. You know, recently, I spoke to former CNN reporter Mike Chinoy, who had hoped many years ago that CNN would be the first to open a bureau in Pyongyang, but that never happened. Uh, but what's the value uh, in, in your mind of opening a, a full-time bureau in, in North Korea? Yeah, you know, I used to, to look at Mike's dispatches on, they're still on YouTube if anyone wants to look at them because he really was, in a sense, one of our predecessors. There was a, a trickle of American correspondents who were able to get into North Korea, but under very controlled circumstances, I would say. The AP also, you know, when I went back into the AP archives, Edith Letter, who is still the UN correspondent for AP based out of New York, also made kind of a one of the early junkets to North Korea in the 1970s. Wow. And, and actually looking at the pictures from her trip, what struck me was that the trip was very similar to the kind of trips that foreign correspondents until a couple of years ago were making in Pyongyang as well. And so there's a difference, I think, in being based on the ground and being part of the local foreign press corps and being a reporter who's brought in on a government junket or on a government organized tour. And not to say that those trips aren't useful. Uh, I, would, I went into Pyongyang, not on my first trip, but on my second trip on such a media event. And mm -hmm. even those trips can be hugely insightful, but they can't compare to, you know, those trips you're on a three, four, five day whirlwind organized trip with a couple government uh, guides, mm -hmm. usually in my case, sometimes they were on that first trip, they were diplomats. And they, you're on a very strict schedule and shown the best parts of Pyongyang. You were there to help project the propaganda. When you're there running an operation, as the Chinese and the Russians do, 
you're for me, I was there for days, weeks on end. You can't put on a show for that period of time, for that long a period of time. And so you get to see what daily life is truly like away from all that theater. And you're also a part of the society in a way that you can't be as a visitor. And so that means in setting up the bureau, of course we had to shop locally. Mm. Of course we had to stock the office. And so I became a part of the economy. I understood how the economy worked as somebody who was building an operation on the ground. You, you have different rights as, a, as essentially as somebody who's living there and working there than you do as a visitor. And I've been there in many different circumstances. I've kind of tested out all the different ways that you visit North Korea. So I understand all the differences as well. Yeah. And there is a difference in your access when it comes to being based there versus visiting on one of these trips organized by the government. Okay, yeah, that's that's very interesting. Uh, what, can you tell us a little bit about the the experience of actually living and working on the ground there? How, what was the uh, the longest single stretch that you were in there for, and and where did you live? So, to be technically speaking, as a U.S. citizen, we don't have diplomatic relations with North Korea, and we were not allowed to have the same kind of residential visa that aid workers mm. and diplomats from countries that have diplomatic relations are able to get. And same with the, you know, the Russian and Chinese journalists had visas that allowed them to go in and out of the country. That said, I was given kind of a modified status in a sense. I was given a, a many of the privileges of people who, foreigners who live in North Korea without actually having that visa. And so the longest that I stayed, it was usually three to five weeks. I would stay three to five weeks at a time, but it was very difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say living and working in North Korea is very challenging. And so uh, three to five weeks was, it's hard to imagine, but it is a grueling, it's a grueling stretch of time in the circumstances that I was operating in. Yeah. And I should mention that I was still running the bureau in Seoul, the AP oh. bureau. So at the time I was running both bureaus. And so I needed to, I wanted to come back and check in with my people. So I came back every month to Seoul for a couple of days right. before turning back around. And, you know, it's a, I wish that I could have driven my car straight through the border. Yeah. It would have saved me a lot of time because, you know, it's, it, as you know, it only takes us 45 minutes to get to drive from Seoul to the, the DMZ. And then from there, I mean, the distance is not that far, but the roads are so terrible. The roads are uh, But terrible. it would only still, yeah, it would, it, would, it would have taken door to door three hours. But for me, it took, you know, it was, it was a couple days. Yeah. Uh, because of the DMZ, the border, because of the border, I had to fly to Beijing, uh, pick up my visa there, and then fly in the next day to Pyongyang. So it was a two-day mm. journey to get to my office in Pyongyang. <laughs> And, and where was the office located? So the office is located next to the, along the Botonggang River, inside the KCNA building. Mm, okay. And, and so it was a, yeah, right across the river from one of the new apartment complexes that Kim Jong-un is building. Ah, and did you live nearby? I lived 
for the most part at the Corio Hotel, Corio, which is not far. One. Yep, absolutely. And um, that is a hotel that is very close to the Pyongyang train station. Mm. As any anyone who travels to North Korea knows, it's it's got a great pub and it tends to be a gathering place for expats as well as for North Korean elites. Mm-hmm. There were some times when I did choose to stay at the at other hotels, uh, but I would say that I considered the Korea Hotel my home. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how would you commute to work each day? Did you have a, a, a bicycle or, or a car or a driver or did you walk? It's funny that you asked that because I, tr- I, I pushed to get a bicycle mm. with something that uh, I really wanted. And um, until you know, for, for a long time, it was, it was actually prohibited for women to, to ride bicycles in North, in Pyongyang. Mm. And um and we were pushing very hard for me to get a bicycle once those restrictions, if and when those restrictions were lifted. But to be honest, it's extremely difficult to ride a bicycle in Pyongyang because of the, the rule, rules. You can't just ride a bicycle across any street. Uh, you have to take it in the, into the underpass. So it's, in any mm. case, I never quite succeeded in getting a bicycle. Mm. I brought a car, I, we had a, I brought a car to Pyongyang uh, from China. And oh. so we had our own vehicle. Okay. Did you drive it in all the way across from the from from Dandong? <laughs> I wish, I wish I had. No, it was shipped uh, okay. to um, Pyongyang, and I um, it was shipped to North Korea. I did not drive it myself. We had a driver who, right. uh, you know, the, the rules and regulations are so tricky. Mm. Uh, even just, I don't know how many times we were yelled at because even my driver who's experienced and yeah. North Korean was breaking the rules. It's, it's very tricky to drive a vehicle in North Korean. Gosh. I know a lot of foreigners do it. Yeah. Uh, foreign diplomats do it, but um, I was, uh, I had a driver. Hmm. Now, before you went in on each trip, did you know roughly kind of what stories you wanted to cover? So I had a running list of stories and interviews that, I would request on a regular basis. If you can imagine which, what those stories might be. Uh, but yes, I mean, I think that one of the challenges in North Korea is access. And you, it's not a country where you, you can pop up and you can't turn up at the airport and just figure out, get in touch with people and set up interviews and it's not that kind of a place. So it's a real, it's a real challenge because everything needs to be requested well in advance. And yeah. not only would I spend a lot of time making those requests and trying to figure out, it's also, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get around the surveillance so that I could trust that my interviews were candid and accurate. So it's, it's unlike any assignment or any country I've covered. And as a foreign correspondent, even though my, sorry about that, somebody, I don't know if you can hear that, but somebody's at the door. I heard a doorbell, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll just ignore that. Uh, but even though I've, you know, most of my career is built, has been built around this one very challenging assignment of North Korea, but I've worked in many, many dozens of countries as a foreign correspondent on assignment. And we pride ourselves on being able to parachute into a country and to cover it well, North Korea is a completely different challenge. Mm. Not only when you're covering it on the ground, 
uh, but when you're covering it from, from the outside, but covering it on the ground brings with it a whole other set of challenges uh, and complications. In some ways, I would say it's easier to cover North Korea from the outside. Yeah. It's a much bigger challenge to try to get on the ground. And there are some news organizations that have decided we're not even going to try to get on the ground. While I respect that, I think that I give more credit to news organizations that do try uh, to, to navigate the challenge of getting on the ground and what that means for the reporters and for their reporting. Right. Would you look at like local media to see if there was a story that was interesting to you that you could follow up on? By local media, do you mean local North Korean or South Korean media? The local North Korean, like the newspapers or the, or the TV or, or the, the, um, the billboard, um, like in the subway station that have the paper up and things like that. So absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the, and this is something that uh, we all should be doing as we watch North Korea, is paying very close attention to, to their state media. Even though it is propaganda, there is something very useful within that propaganda, and, and it can serve as a starting point, right? Mm -hmm. You, <clears throat> So for me, understanding where they were investing their resources was very helpful to understanding what their priorities were. And also, you knew as well that those were places where you could, you were likely to get access. So once you have that access, what do you do with it? And that's the next step to, to reporting. Uh, and so absolutely, I would pay very close attention to, I mean, I, you know, I read their state media thoroughly on a daily basis and watched their state TV. Mm -hmm. For me, it also went beyond that. I watched their dramas. I watched their documentaries. Right. All of their content needs to be taken with a grain of salt because it's, yeah. it's propaganda. But there's so much that we can still learn from it. And it can serve as a starting point. You know, as a journalist covering North Korea, you need to look at all sources of information, not only state media, also speaking to sources outside the country. So you kind of need to triangulate information from mm. all those different sources in different cities, capitals, including in Pyongyang. But I was, I, I felt uh, that it was useful. In some ways, it was, it can be difficult to get information on the ground in North Korea because it is so compromised. But you just add that to all the information that you get from other places so that you start building a cohesive narrative. And then for me, a lot of what I learned did not make it into my reporting, to be honest. It can be a challenge to write for a wire service because we, we to write, the, the way that we do journalism in the West does require us to to verify and find additional sources. For me, what I learned on the ground as a, as a journalist in North Korea was everything that I absorbed by being there, by mm. living there, by working there, yeah. by being with North Koreans 24 seven. Some of that may not get into my news coverage, mm. but it certainly informs how I understand what life in North Korea is like. And that, that was invaluable. That is the kind of thing that I try to share a bit in my podcast with some of the stories that I share from my time in North Korea. These are elements and stories that may not have made it into my reporting, mm. but I think have certainly shaped my understanding of you know, who Kim Jong-un is, uh, what his priorities are, and what the people think and feel, because that is often the missing component. 
yeah. in our coverage of North Korea. Did you feel that there were any big stories that the North Korean government kept from you so that you, you know, to try to stop you from finding out about things? Of course, absolutely. And um, there were, you know, I certainly wanted to visit a prison camp, for example, to see what the conditions like. That's something I was not able to do. Mm -hmm. I did want to visit the Yongbyung nuclear complex. Oh, yeah. That was something I wasn't able to do. That was something that uh, they knew was very high on my list of of sites that I want to, wanted to visit. Yeah. Uh, so certainly there were things, the, an interview with Kim Jong-un was something that I wasn't able to carry out, which I had hoped I would be able to have before my tenure was up. Uh, yeah, so there's certainly a long list of things that I never quite got to and that they were, it was very difficult for them to, to arrange. And, and yet there were many, many, many other things that we were able to do that were a first. And I don't know how many times I turned up somewhere and I was not only, you know, the first American that they had met, yeah. but also the first foreign journalist. And so all it, for me, it was always about pushing those boundaries, getting to places that no one, no journalist had been to yeah. so that I could see, get beyond the capital, see what life was like, get to know the culture, get to know what the reality of life was like. And so even though I was, there were stories that I wasn't able to cover. And I would say that as a journalist, that was certainly true my entire career. I was just thinking about in my, my early years as a journalist in California, one of the stories that I was doing, trying to do was about gang baiting in the California prison system. Mm. So a story, an investigative piece about how guards were pitting gang members from rival mm. gangs in 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 fight yeah. on on the prison grounds and you know i think getting permission to get into the prison took months mm. of persistent requests and i did finally get into the prison where charles manson uh, was being held wow. uh, but likewise i would say that every government has its the hurdles to access North Korea just has the most extreme yeah, yeah. hurdles to access. In May uh, 2014, uh, so that's, uh, what are we, seven and a half years ago, an unfinished apartment building collapsed in Pyongyang, and then a rare public apology was issued uh, by a representative of the North Korean government. Were you there when that happened? I was not. I was on sabbatical. So... Uh, uh, yeah, I was on sabbatical that year. So I wasn't in Pyongyang. I believe I, yeah, I think I had been in Pyongyang earlier that year, but uh, not when the, um, when the building, its collapse happened itself. Ah, uh, okay. And uh, I yeah, I, I do remember it very clearly. I mean, absolutely devastating. Yeah. Certainly a revelation to how perhaps shoddy their construction te techniques were. But as you are probably suggesting, also really interesting because, with something like that, that's an occasion where we don't get to see the kind of reporting that we would see anywhere else. It's an example of how they're able to really control and cover up mm. these disasters, not only from their own people, but from the international media and from the rest of the world. I mean, there's no greater example of this than the death of the leaders. 
So we right. had, you know, as you mentioned, your first question was, I was supposed to go open. Yeah, I mean, just going back to that question to give you an example, mm. I was in Beijing 10 years ago. So around this time, I think I was working on breaking a story. I was, I was, I was working on breaking or confirming the news that, that there was a, a, a landmark US-North Korean deal in the works. And so I actually got that confirmation, broke the story about what we call the Leap Day deal. They eventually signed it on Leap Day of 2012. Yeah. But in December 2011, I was frantically trying to confirm the rumors that this deal was in the works. I think I reported that story. And then I, I headed to the airport to, on the 19th of December, go open the AP Bureau on December 20th. And that was when, on the 19th, we heard that Kim Jong-il had died. Right. He had, in fact, died on the 17th. So this yeah. is the 10 year anniversary is coming up. So we're going to see a lot of activity around that in the coming weeks in North Korea. Yeah. But um, yeah, he had died on the 17th, but the North Koreans kept it under wraps for two days before announcing it. And they, at even, noon. even with smaller stories, there, there is a time lag, right? That North Korea can be quite slow. Like, uh, you know, if Kim Jong-il goes to China and meets Xi Jinping, you may not read about that in North Korean media until a good couple of days have elapsed. Yes, so they have such a tight control over the, the flow of information. And that's one of the concerns that I have right now, mm. given the border closures, yeah. the lack of a presence of you know, Western, not even journalists, obviously, but diplomats and aid workers as well. Mm. It's just that tight control over the flow of information. They're yeah. very good at it. And so it makes it very hard for us to know what's actually happening. It's inconceivable in this day and age that the leader of a country would die and, and they would be able to control that information so closely. And uh, of course, when Kim Jong-il years earlier, and that when I was referring to 2008, when, when Kim Jong-il, the late leader, suffered a stroke and fell into a coma, mm. we didn't mm. see him from August to the following April. Right. And just an unbelievable control over the flow of information. And that's how North Korea manages to shape the narrative. And it's, I've never seen it as strictly enforced as, a, as now. And that's partly why I wanted to get on the ground. It's like, what are we missing? But like you point out with the apartment collapse, mm. my, my, my former colleagues at the AP did not report on it either. So they their local staff failed them in that sense as well. Uh, if they knew about it and kept it from them, and I don't know right. how much they knew about it, yeah. but you know, I think that things happen in parts of the world or in places there, that we in the news media don't always learn about mm. until a little bit later. Uh, but certainly any kind of breaking news in North Korea is a, is a, is a huge challenge. Do you feel that AP had to pull its punches at all uh, while reporting in Pyongyang? Because while being a journalist there on the ground, on the, in, in another sense, you could also end up becoming a hostage if things go very wrong. And I, I was reminded of the case of um, BBC TV journalist uh, Rupert Wingfield Hayes when he was reporting inside North Korea. And he said something that they didn't like and they took him aside and, and he was, uh, uh, I think, detained for 12 to 24 hours or something. So did, did that hold you back a little bit? So I would say that uh, 
I know from the outside, it looks like, and, and, and I would say that his situation is a little bit different from mine. I mean, every journalist situation is a little bit different, so we can't really generalize. Uh, in his case, he, if I were him, he was traveling with a delegation. He was brought in by a delegation of foreigners who were, who were on an official trip to North Korea. Those are slightly different circumstances. And if I were him, I would also be, you'd have to be mindful not only of jeopardizing the delegation that you're with and their objectives, but if you go in under uncertain pre uh, circumstances, like if it's not clear that you're going there to report. Oh, I think I have to interrupt. Put... Um, I think you might be confusing the other BBC guy, Sweeney, I forget his first name there, who went in, as you say, with the, the London School of Economics and then ended up making a documentary about it kind of under false pretenses well, but i was thinking there's that case too but i am thinking about rupert wingfield hayes he went in with a group of nobel laureates and um but so in that case you have to think so what i'm trying to get to is that each situation is difficult and as a reporter who's there if you're not experienced with north korea then you're many many foreign correspondents go in there with the objective it's their one and only chance to get into north korea and it's a, their one and only chance, possibly, to have that dateline, to see what's happening and to report. But with each circumstance, you have to think about, for example, he would have perhaps put not only his delegation in jeopardy or in trouble, but also his hosts, his guides. And so and this is not to criticize or it's just that every situation is different. Now, and that's the same, I think, for me in the sense that people may look at it from the outside. And I was often accused of as you say, pulling my punches. But you have to understand that there are a lot of stakeholders and it's not just me that I'm worried about. Obviously, as an American correspondent, we are under, the, under extreme scrutiny because we are often characterized or I should say mischaracterized or assumed to be working for the US government because many North Korean journalists do, you know, they do work for their government. Mm. And I, no matter how many times I said I don't work for the U.S. government, it was yeah. hard for them to understand that. So you need to go in there understanding that you're under a different kind of scrutiny. That said, that was not my concern. That was a concern. But my biggest concern certainly was, uh, you know, when you run an operation in North Korea, it's not just you. You've got North Koreans working for you. So for me, it's not just about my own safety. It's about the safety of the people who are working for me. And I think that's a point that gets missed, uh, you know, by critics of, of, of coverage of North Korea. But mm. there's some reporting that you can do in North Korea, uh, but there's some reporting that you can do more effectively and just as effectively outside the country without jeopardizing the safety of the people who are working for you. So, you know, you've got to protect your sources, you've got to protect your colleagues. And so when I say that you triangulate information, what I mean when you put together a story about North Korea is that you, you don't just rely on what you, you, you rely on sources that you get all over the world mm. for different reasons. And so if you were to look at my coverage um, at the time, I certainly made an effort to make sure that uh, certain information came from certain sources in certain places. So this is, a, this is a level of nuance about the coverage of North Korea that many critics don't get. And that's fine. They had people have a political reason for why they want to attack coverage of North Korea. 
uh, but it's a very complicated, when done right and then done ethically, is very complicated and it should be. And so it's not an easy question. It's not just about, do you pull, have, did you pull your punches? I wouldn't yeah. put it that way. I would say that I was very concerned uh, not only about my own safety, but the safety of the people who work for me. And it's a complicated issue, but anybody who works in North Korea understands what I'm talking about. It's certainly, it's a very complicated issue, as you say. Uh, did government people ever try to, I mean, North Korean government people, try to exert any editorial input or control on what you were writing? They certainly tried to suggest where to go and what to see. And that's why I make the distinction between working on the ground versus coming in on the kind of trips that most foreign correspondents come in on. Uh, because often those correspondents don't have much say about where they're going to be taken. Uh, but for me, you know, I think that my staff on the ground knew after a period of time that they could suggest places for me to visit, but that I wouldn't go unless it was a place that I chose or asked to visit. Mm. So this is a huge, this was a huge victory for me in the sense of, I really needed as a journalist, as a Western journalist, to be able to pick and choose where I went. It's not easy. And that's the benefit of having an operation on the ground and a benefit of being a journalist who understands how, the, how, how things operate. So I, <laughs> so in that sense, of course, they tried, and, and, um, but they also were respectful and they, uh, they came to anticipate yeah. that I would say no. Right. Now, uh, and, and um, yep, I mean, uh, the biggest, I think the biggest accomplishment for me or achievement was for us to agree that what I, what I do as a, an American journalist is very different than what North Korean journalists do. And to agree to disagree on how we approach journalism. I'm sure that they want, what they wanted were, was for all, and what they want is for all foreign media to be, to serve as a mouthpiece and to project their propaganda. Yeah. And I would say that, unfortunately, when we go into these organized trips for these big events, we do serve that role. When we cover the big military parades, we project the image that North Korea wants the world to see. We are, in a sense, projecting their propaganda. And so it's important to try to get past that. There's, you know, that is a chance to get into the country, but journalists have to find a way to get past what it is the government in North Korea wants us to project and to find ways to, to shed some light on what, what's happening beyond that propaganda. I haven't really seen, you know, I think that uh, Will Ripley and Mike Chinoy and any mm. other journalist who's been there multiple times will tell you that the more you go, the more you understand. Yeah. Uh, and it takes many, many trips to really get a sense for what's happening because the theater is so well done and the regulations and the kind of restrictive nature of our travel there when you're when you're there with a with a government retinue is is so strictly organized. But the more a journalist goes, the more time they spend on the ground, the more they understand what's real and what's not. And I shouldn't say what's real, but you know, there is an element of theatricality to North Korean mm. society. They want us to see the prettiest parts of their society. So getting beyond that and trying to show not just the pretty parts, but also the full picture takes time. And the problem is that journalists today don't have that opportunity. 
in, uh, in December 2014 on NK News, uh, Nate Sayer wrote an article in which he alleged, based on having seen a confidential document and interviews with then current and former AP staff, that top executives of AP had agreed to distribute North Korean propaganda through the AP or under the AP name, uh, and that AP's news gathering was effectively under some level of control by the Ministry of State Security. Since you no longer work there, are you able to comment on that now? Well, I would say, first of all, that um, Nate Thayer, is that his name? Yeah, Nate Thayer. Never yeah. interviewed me. And there's nobody in that operation who knows the operation better than me. And he never interviewed me. I don't know who he spoke to. Um, I think it's possible that he looked at an early draft of KCNA's side of what they wanted, but that by no means, an early draft. Mm. I mean, of course the North Koreans can put forward what they want, but did I agree to that? Absolutely not. And so I think that's an example of irresponsible reporting, to be absolutely honest. And, um, you know, it's disappointing. I mean, I think that you should make it clear that you didn't speak to the person who both negotiated and ran that operation. I don't know who he spoke to for that reporting. And I don't know if he spoke to, I don't remember if anybody was quoted from the AP uh, to confirm the details of that, art, that, that draft agreement. But all I'll say is that, yeah, the North Koreans were perfectly entitled to, mm. to propose what they would like. Um, but I, I by no means would agree to that. So I think that that's an example of, you know, I, I would question the reporting. It was a disappointing article, certainly, um, I think, detrimental to the effort of foreign journalists to get on the ground by mischaracterizing the agreement. Now, there are, I should say that there are many news organizations that do have agreements. So we did, we, you know, the AP does have agreements with news organizations, or I should say, you know, KCNA, many news organizations do have an agreement where they receive North Korea state media. And Yonhap, which is the South Korean news agency, and AP and, and, and AFP and other news organizations have an agreement to also distribute images from KCNA and perhaps from state TV. Yeah. But it's absolutely ludicrous to think that any Western news organization would agree to distribute propaganda. By it may maybe it's a technical term because frankly, even when you are are distributing North Korea state photos, that that is technically propaganda. But then you could accuse Yonhap News and every other news organization, Reuters, every other news organization of promoting North Korea's propaganda. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, it, it makes it very challenging. The what we do in Western, in the U.S., is as an American reporter, I don't. It's somewhat easier. I think it was easier for the Chinese and Russian journalists on the ground because mm. they they perhaps played a different role and had a different objective. Uh, but for us, we have very different standards. And to carry out the kind of journalism that we strive for in a place like North Korea is hugely challenging. And uh, it's, it is difficult when what you get is mostly propaganda. And that's why you need to do all that other legwork yeah. to try to get past that. I mean, I would have, you know, it's, <laughs> the way that North Korea does its reporting is they report on 
yeah, I mean, they, they, what they do is propaganda and they're very proud. They're very proud to play that role, completely different than, from what we do. Did you meet um, uh, Russian and Chinese, and I think there's a Cuban journalist based there. Did you meet those uh, locally based foreign reporters who, as you say, are doing kind of different work to what you did? And did you have a, a collegial relationship with them? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I did see some South Korean. Yeah, I think there's some sort of a mystique around who those journalists are. But for those of us who are on the ground, we were all friends. And, um, you know, my one of my objectives was to try to make sure that we were all tight and that we were all communicating. So, you know, the North Koreans did their best to try to divide us. And this is there's so much about working in North Korea that helps you understand how they think and how they manage mm -hmm. foreigners. Yeah. And it's certainly working there certainly shaped my understanding of how they approach negotiations, for example, right. how they approach business deals, because I had my own business deal to manage. One of the things they tried to do was really divide all of us journalists. And so I made an effort to bring all of us together. And I think that was very frustrating for them because uh. I, but then we all learned how to, I would say, use our different types of access mm. as a group try to push for better access and oddly enough i think i was the ringleader i mm. was the one who had the most leverage you would think it would be the chinese and the russians but right. actually as the american huh. i had the most leverage wow uh, so yeah so absolutely it was very very close to except for the um japanese journalists who would come in from kyoto from time to time they listened to the north koreans and did not uh did not sort of fraternize <laughs> uh -huh. but the um but the uh, but the Russian and Chinese journalists were yeah. among my closest friends in Pyongyang. Huh. Now, your local uh, North Korean staff uh, who worked with you for AP, where did they come from? Were they uh, did they have a journalistic background? And what was the process of recruiting them like? Yeah, they were uh, they were journalists, but and, and one of them was did speak fluent English. The other did not. He came from broadcast background. And so. They, I would say they were, how can I put it? I mean, they were, I would say their first loyalty was to North Korea. And, um, but they were very hardworking and did their best to get everything that I wanted. And that was, and it was actually both frustrating and incredibly rewarding to work with them because I was able to, not only learn so much about North Korean life from them, but also teach them some of the tricks and, and tricks of our trade as well. Yeah. Teaching them how to network, teaching them how to build sources. Mm. Uh, they, but, you know, it's, I did actually conduct an interview process, interviewed a number of journalists, and they were, and selected them from, from the journalists that we interviewed. I, uh, I think it was, um, gosh, I, I'm, my memory's fading a bit now, but I was talking to uh, to somebody recently who uh, mentioned interviewing North Koreans for a position, and uh, there were two candidates, uh, and one of them could speak no English, uh, and the other one could. So it was very clear who the government wanted him to uh, to pick for that particular position. Um, so, but in your case, the people you interviewed, they were all uh, capable, and, and you just chose who you thought was the best one. So, to be honest, I didn't get my first choice. But uh, she was a valuable asset uh, to KCNA's English service. Mm. <laughs> so 
unfortunately, I didn't get my top choice. Uh. Uh, but um, but the the young man who, as I mentioned, speaks fluent English was yeah. my second choice, mm -hmm. and he was somebody who had been raised overseas and uh. was young and energetic and um, was eager to learn and. It, it was actually an absolute delight working with him. Uh, so in, so I'm glad that I got my number two. <laughs> so we good. had, you know, I think that, yeah, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult, it's, it's, it's a challenging, it's not like any other country where you can post a job notice. Mm. And that just is reflective of how things work in North Korea as well. Right. Um, North Koreans do not have the freedom to pick and choose not you know the path that they want yeah. they have a certain amount of freedom but it's pretty constrictive it's pretty it's pretty constrained compared to what we're used to in the west and so that's part of the understanding of their society as well and how rigid it is and how uh you know they are routed into their education into university according to what they can offer the state yeah. frankly mm. and so we also we, we tend to look at and criticize north korean society because we're looking at it from the filter of our western upbringing uh and that's not to say that it doesn't deserve criticism but it's just to say that when you're there you also have to look at it you, understanding how people end up where they are mm. requires understanding their system it doesn't mean sanctioning it or you know i think still think it's it's it breaks my heart that people don't have freedom in yeah. korea in any sense of the word yeah uh, but again we need to understand how their system works and for, yeah, there's a, I think, a very complex set of uh, qualities that, that contribute to who would even qualify to work for an American news organization. Now, remember that every single person who worked for me would have been under incredible scrutiny. Mm -hmm. They're going out on a limb because anytime you work with a foreigner, there's the risk of influence. And we're seeing that now. I think we see the, um, the right now we see the danger of foreign influence, right? And we mm. see reports in some media about how North Koreans are punished because they're listening to South BTS or listening yeah, to yeah. Uh, South Korean pop music or re-watching South, South Korean dramas. And likewise, we have to remember that the North Koreans who work with us are also putting themselves in jeopardy. So the North Koreans are also looking and thinking very carefully about who the right people are so to, to put into that position. So I think it's a really complicated formula. And did you hang out together with these people after work and visit each other's houses and go for meals and whatnot? I mean, I was pretty much with them, I would say, 24-7. Yeah. Uh, they lived, they, they, they essentially lived with me while I was there. Uh, obviously, they had their own lodgings. But um, when we traveled, we stayed in home we, and we, we traveled outside the capital on every um, reporting trip I made. And you know, we stayed in hotels in the countryside. And so we were playing games and they taught me North Korean card games and drinking games and all of that. And so absolutely, mm. we, I spent a lot of time with them uh, and that, that was invaluable time. It was certainly a chance to get to know them and get to know what their lives were like and, and what life was like outside, away from all of that uh, formality. Do you feel as a Korean American journalist that you received treatment different to that, either better or worse, that re received by a non-ethnically Korean journalist? Yeah, Jacko, I think that's a really good question. And, and since we're on a podcast, I should point out that I am a second generation Korean American. 
And I do think that that's different. I, I was born and raised in the United States, not in South Korea. And so in some ways they could tell right away that I wasn't South Korean. Mm. Uh, and they they understand in North Korea, they call it a dongbo, an overseas Korean. They understand uh, that community in a sense, in, they have an experience, with, have experience with that community. For example, they rely very much on their, their dongbo community in Japan, uh, the Jotonyeon, and they rely on their overseas community of Koreans in China uh, who live in those border provinces very close to North Korea. And so they understand when you've got these ethnic Koreans who go to North Korea, who may not speak Korean fluently, who, who understand Korea a little bit differently, but come from the same ethnic background. Mm. And that to me was fascinating. And I think that they saw me as one of these Dongpo from the United States, a little right. bit different because it's not, but just like the, the community in Japan, their country does not have, it's a country where their country has a very difficult relationship and a very difficult history. Mm. And I think that that was what made my tenure as AP's bureau chief very different than any other bureau chief. And I think was part of why I was able to open an office. When they look at me, they didn't see that stereotype. So when you go to North Korea, you know, as you know, the propaganda portrays Americans, Americans in a very specific way, right? I mean, right. How, would you, how would you describe how they're portrayed? Uh, well, very racialized. Um, so uh, big nose, blonde haired white men with evil intent trying to uh, do what they can to destroy the Korean race. Yeah, we see that picture. I mean, the bit, the, the, the crooked nose thing. I mean, it's just like this evil ogre, right? So, yeah. uh, and so in a sense, I do think that they still have that propaganda is so deeply entrenched that, as you know, they start learning that propaganda from a very early age. Yeah. And so they still have a fear of when I would bring some of my American or foreign colleagues, they would just kind of recoil from them and out of a kind of, because it grows out of this discrimination yeah. uh, based on these stereotypes. But, you know, when they look at me, that they don't see that. And right. so I think that there was immediately uh, one of those hurdles was erased. And, you know, I still feel that it's important uh, to try to be open-minded and objective. And I tried to go to North Korea with that kind of an approach and making sure that our coverage was balanced, making sure that I wasn't going in there with any kind of political objective. Uh, but of course the coverage, my coverage and my coverage today needs to be absolutely accurate, as accurate as can be showing both the negative and expressing what their point of view is. So with our podcast, for example, with the Lazarus Eyes, yeah. you know, it's very adamant that we try to reach out to the North Koreans and get their response. Right. Many news outlets don't even try. I mean, they, they'll say, well, we can't get a response. Why even try? Mm. But even for the Lazarus Heist, my goal was, hey, we're, we're talking about North Korea. We need to get the North Korean response. And we did. And I certainly know how to write a letter to the North Koreans and how to get a response, <laughs> um, but to also show how they portray and how they're going to react and what their response might be. Uh, back in the mid 2000s, there was a time when Pyongyang specifically didn't want uh, any foreign aid or NGO workers coming into North Korea who could speak Korean. I don't know whether they saw that as a threat or suspected them of, of some spying or what it was, but you know, they, there was a, an actual sanction against that. Now, how was it with you? You speak Korean. Did the North Korean government have any difficulty with that or were they totally okay with it? Because you're a Dongpo, as you say. 
Yeah, I mean, I would say that my Korean is not totally fluent, first of all. And so one of the biggest forms of entertainment for my staff was to teach me how to speak like a North Korean. Yeah. So, <laughs> they actually love that. And so certainly we spent a lot of time trying to turn me into a North Korean, which was beneficial for me because I was right. able to then blend in. Um, was it a was it a threat? No, I think that um, I think that uh, if I were totally fluent in Korean, like a South Korean, it might have felt like a threat. Uh, and so, but no, I mean, I think that with my Korean, I was able to express that I understood the history, the shared history between the two Koreas. I knew their food. I knew in some ways some of the shared traditions, and that was somewhat of a uh, I think a reassurance for them. But I was still very American to them. To them, I was obviously very American. Um, I think it's, it's that, uh, that question that comes up. I do think that we should, foreign organizations should push for the right to bring in people who understand their culture and speak the language and can serve as a bridge. Mm. And that's how it should be conveyed. And sh they should fight against the desire to control the translation, for example, they sometimes will prefer to have people who are not Korean speakers because that way they can control what's translated. Yeah. With me, obviously, I they knew that I understood everything that was happening. It gave me another layer of understanding. Mm. And I can tell you that not everything is translated into English mm. for yeah. foreign correspondents. Right. And so you absolutely want to have somebody who speaks Korean there to catch all of that nuance. Yeah. To catch not just the propaganda, but all the jokes, all the sly comments, mm. all the all of the good stuff is spoken in Korean and is not translated right. into English. And so this is something that news organizations should absolutely make a priority. And foreign NGOs and diplomats should also push for as just it's I don't think it's up for negotiation and frankly foreign entities should have the right to bring in mm -hmm. whoever they choose as as whoever they think is best for that operation right now you you mentioned that uh, you know long uh, three to five week uh, trips could be quite grueling uh, did you always I know for some people, when they go to North Korea, certainly for me, I've never been there more than a week, and I always feel like I'm on guard. Uh, I don't want to, you know, don't want to drink too many beers. I don't want. I might say something uh, or make the wrong joke. Did you always feel on your guard in North Korea? Were there moments of of, of lightness and just, you know, complete relaxation as well? I don't know that I was ever completely relaxed. I mean, I think North Korea is, and that's something that you know, for you as well, visiting you, you had that sense of how difficult it is to live in a surveillance state. And I think it's really important to go there and experience that, to understand how difficult life is and how constrained life is, as the lack of freedom of movement, the lack of freedom of speech. There's no way for us in the West to understand that until we experience it. And we don't really have any equivalent mm -hmm. in the rest of the world or in our world. Yeah. Um, I never was able to relax. And I think that you you operate there in a constant state of tension. Uh, and there, the people people who think that they're relaxed, I think, don't quite know what's and don't really understand the level of surveillance is my feeling. Right. And I often had this debate, would you, is it better to be there totally oblivious and mm. thinking that it's everything's fine? Or is it better to be very highly attuned to it? I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Would you, do you think that it was better to be 
Would you rather have been oblivious or do you think it was better to kind of have a sense of the surveillance? Well, they do say ignorance is bliss, don't they? I mean, there's certainly some joy in, in being completely oblivious to the um, to to what's around you. But in terms of of trying to understand or being a truth seeker or or you know reporter, that's yeah, you can't be oblivious. You have to have your eyes open and, and to see what are the stresses and and the constraints around you. I think that uh, it's very difficult, you know, for any force going in. They absolutely need to be briefed on the dangers of being in North Korea. And of course, we've seen some tourists, Otto Warmbier is the, is the most tragic example. Yeah, yeah. I'm not fully understanding that you're operating in a country where the rules and regulations are very strict yeah. and that the consequences and punishment are very severe. Yeah. Something that might seem like a prank anywhere else is taken very seriously in a place like North Korea. And and so we should never go to North Korea without understanding that. Yeah. It's and I think it's hard for us because we've grown up with such liberty right. and such freedom. And it's very hard for us to understand and wrap our minds around. Uh, but the more you're there, the more you understand it. The more you're there, the more you feel it and you see it and you you are suffocated by it. And I think it gives us insight into what it's like to live. Uh, as a North Korean as well. They, mm. you know, they, it's a little bit different because they grow up in it. Yeah. They learn to live with it. And likewise, I would say I learned to live with it in some ways. You learn when and where you can speak freely. But I would just say that because we haven't grown up with it, it's very hard on us. It's harder on us in some ways because we're not accustomed to it. I think, um, yeah, with the North Koreans as well, I think uh, they grow up with that. They learn how to let loose when they can, they learn how to create safe spaces for mm. themselves. They learn who to trust uh, and how to protect themselves. And learning how they do that, their survival instinct is fascinating. For your colleague who, who grew up overseas, I wonder how it is for people like him that, uh, you know, they grow up, they're North Korean, they're, they're with North Koreans, but still it's overseas. They can't have the complete level of acculturation or uh, uh, or getting used to that sense of, of surveillance all the time. But once they go back to North Korea, bam, they're in it, you know, they're dropped in it. And I wonder if it's harder for people like that, that, uh, you know, they've seen the outside, they, they've walked on land, as it were, and now they're back in the water. You know, it, 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 yeah, did you ever sense that, that it was hard for him? Well, so with my colleagues, you know, I took my colleagues overseas uh, multiple times. And so certainly you get a and you get to experience what life is like for them when they leave the country. Mm. But, you know, I think that I did often wonder for North Koreans who spent a, the greater part of their childhoods with that relative freedom, how restrictive it, how hard it was for them to go back. Yeah. And for that very reason, the, you know, Kim Jong-un is under a lot of pressure to try to keep them happy because mm -hmm. there were for many years until this border closure, North Koreans living, studying, working abroad right. and really learning, having relative relative freedom compared to their lives in North Korea. That said, I think that they're still, their lives are still fairly, you know, they do check in, they, it's not complete freedom. They still have some, they're still tethered to mm. young, I think in, in, in many ways. Right. But I think that that's why it is, it is so important for Kim Jong-un to maintain their loyalty, to try to recreate and replicate their lives with some of the, if not the freedom than with some of the goods that they got to enjoy when they were overseas and 
not having that ability right now is certainly probably very difficult for, for his hold on leadership. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. It's that cognitive dissonance, you know, we, that we think about that mm. how are they able to go between these two worlds? But we have to remember that the North Koreans who are sent overseas often are members of the elites who mm. have standing in Pyongyang and are very invested in their futures in Pyongyang. And so they are able to understand that they do things differently outside the country but they operate under their country's rules no matter where they are. And, and they know that their future is in North Korea, unless they choose to defect, which I think we're seeing more and more elites do. Um, so it's, it's really hard for us to understand. It's very mind boggling. But when you work with North Koreans, you also understand that they employ a kind of cognitive dissonance to try to help them compartmentalize their experiences abroad and their experiences in North Korea. Uh, Jean, when did you uh, when did your term as bureau chief in Pyongyang end? When was your last trip up there? So I uh, went on sabbatical in 2014, and I did make a trip uh, with a tour agency in 2014. I'm trying to remember if it was 2014 or 2015. In 2014. And then I was on sabbatical again with um, the Wilson Center in 2015. I went back in 2017 with the Korean American Medical Association. And that was my last trip to North Korea was in 2017. And for that, it was, you know, it wasn't as a tourist, but uh, with this medical delegation of yeah. Korean American doctors who go there to carry out surgeries. So another very interesting experience as a Dongpo, as an overseas Korean. Yeah. Uh, really getting to know what their medical uh, system was like and their healthcare system was like, something that I had done a lot of reporting on as a, as a journalist as well. If the Gene Lee of today could go back in time and meet the Gene Lee of 2011, right before going in to, uh, to, to open the Bureau, uh, what would you like to have been able to tell yourself? Oh my gosh, that, I've never thought about that, but that is a really good question. I think, you know, it's really what I have told myself, I think I would have uh, advised myself, I would have, I would have tried to pace myself a bit better. It was such an intense period, if you remember, 2011, 2012, the early years of Kim Jong-un's uh, leadership. There was so much we didn't know uh, back in that time period. I just wasn't getting any sleep. We were working around the clock, and I was barraged by so much criticism about even just the pure fact that I was there in North Korea I, for, for whatever reason, and I, in some ways I see it as, uh, it's always hard to be the first one, uh, also being a woman and being mm. an Asian woman, I felt I was often unfairly characterized, unfairly targeted, and it made it very hard for me to do my job and to defend what we were doing. Uh, I think that if I, you know, what I tell myself back then was to stay the course and to understand that, that, that you know, to be, to ignore the criticism both coming from coming from all you know, the, the criticism and the pressure and the um, the tension was coming from all directions at the time, and it made it very hard. Uh, if I, I found it very paralyzing at the time, and I think I would have, if I could give myself counsel back, knowing what I know now, it would be to to pace myself and to look at the larger picture and the importance of everything. But to be honest, I think I did that. What I gained from that experience is, is the time that I spent 
getting to know the country on the ground. And that was something that was invaluable and that I carry with me and try to share today. It certainly informs my understanding of everything that's happening even today, even though it's been a while since I've been there. When you spend that much time on the ground, I think you know a place. Mm. And, and so I think I, I did accomplish in some ways what I wanted, which was a better understanding of North Korea. But I do wish that I had had you know, the ability to stay on the ground for a longer period. But to be honest, it was so grueling, mm. so draining. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't an assignment that anyone I think could, that many people could do for very long. And so I think that I, my advice would have been to just pace myself, ignore the criticism and carry on. Uh, and um, that was the toughest thing to, to deal with at the time. And in addition to the challenges on the ground. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, I, I, I think that for me personally, there was a great utility and usefulness in having the experience to get to know North Korea the way that I did. And I'm just heartbroken that we don't have, just for the sake of our understanding of North mm. Korea, that we don't have more people on the ground who are able to get past that propaganda and and get to know North Korea the way that I did. What's the status of the AP Bureau in, in Pyongyang now? Is, is it effectively on hold? Are local staff still reporting there? I believe they have local staff reporting, but I would imagine that it's been quite some time since the AP has had anyone inside the country, which is a real shame. And uh, certainly, Holding on to the bureau and holding on to control of the operation is extremely difficult and should not be underestimated. And that's true not just for that's true for any operation. As anyone who's working on the ground in North Korea, whether it's for an NGO or for an embassy, will tell you that that just being able to hold on to that operation and survive inside that operation is a huge challenge mm. and is a full-time job unto itself. So it's it, we'll see. I, 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 I hope, wish the best for that operation and um, hope that there are more journalists who can get on the ground in the same way. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I think that sanctions, treasury sanctions make it impossible. And so it may be that I just happened to be there at a time when North Korea was willing and open to letting an American journalist in the country, yeah. but that door may have shut. And it may be some time before you see somebody like me there again. Gosh. Are you uh, writing or do you plan to write a book on your experiences inside North Korea? Well, I'm sharing quite a bit. I think that I share some of that experience through the podcast. And I hope that we'll be able to um, continue doing that. Um, you know, I have to say that, and I do hope to do more writing. And, and through my commentary and through feature stories and essays, which I find to be an easier form format for including some of my North Korea experiences. Daily journalism is a very difficult format for that, uh, that, that I can kind of share and impart those experiences just so people have a, a, a broader understanding of what life is like on the ground. Mm. Uh, but um, yeah, for me, one of the challenges is trying to reach a broader one of my objectives is to reach a broader audience and to get more of the general public interested and engaged. And with the Lazarus heist, because it has done so well, 
uh, in the podcast world. I hope that people are not put off by the fact that it's about North Korea and cyber, mm-hmm. but take a listen to it and are drawn in to this country that is not only very interesting, but poses such a challenge for us geopolitically and in terms of security and a country where the people are, we shouldn't forget about the people of North Korea and what they're going through, what they're, what they're, what they face. Uh, so I feel very lucky to have a, a platform now to get people interested in North Korea and hopefully it'll, it'll draw them to your podcast as well. Uh, so that they have that, ignite that sense of curiosity about this country that seems so far away and to really humanize North Koreans so that they're Mm. not just this caricature like we saw in the interview, but a real country whose leadership, you know, with leaders whose actions have real consequence where diplomacy matters and where challenges like their investment in cyber that that reaches us and that people, an everyday person understands the motivations behind that cyber activity and understands why they should care about what's happening in North Korea. When did the last episode of the Lazarus Heist come out? So the, it was a 10 part series that, that we unveiled this spring and we will have hopefully uh, more episodes to come. Hey, that's what I was going to ask. That was my next question. Yeah, okay. So you've got an update. So with the 10th episode, yeah, with the 10th episode, we we, we did tease your fewer episodes and um, hopefully we'll be able to soon, we'll be able to announce soon when those are coming out. But we'll, oh, it's, great. it's certainly an opportunity for me. Of course, my interest is, uh, I'm not a cyber expert, but um, my interest is just in providing the background or the context for that cyber activity. Yeah. And it's a chance to really um, tell some of these stories about North Korea, not only my own stories, but bringing defectors to tell their stories, uh, to try to flesh out that picture of who mm. these hackers are and what and why North Korea is investing in cyber. So it's been, I don't know how you're enjoying the podcasting world, but it's great to sometimes hear these stories and have these, these in-depth conversations. Yeah, well, exactly. That's uh, precisely why I've been doing it uh almost four years now. Uh, I'm really glad to hear that new episodes of the Lazarus Highs podcast are coming out soon. I'll, I'll be listening very much. Uh, I'll probably have to go back to episode one and hear it again uh, and then hear the new ones. Uh, and I want to thank you uh, once again, Jean, for coming on the podcast. Uh, you've been really great. And it was wonderful that we managed to get through without having a, a break. So that, that's great. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, I appreciate it. And thanks for um encouraging people to listen to the Lazarus test. I, I not only want to encourage feedback, I want people, your listeners in particular, who mm-hmm. include a lot of North Korea observers, to reach out with ideas on where we right. should go next. Right, because it, it's, uh, it's a mystery that's not complete. You know, there's, there's still things to uncover, right? So people can send in their clues to you, can also reach you on Twitter uh, at NewsGene. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much, Gene. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that's it for today's podcast. If you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. Uh, And if you have any feedback, questions, or future guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this episode and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks and listen again next time. Bye.